Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, it's my pleasure to share with you a Mage-intensive interview with Matt Wagner. Matt was amazingly generous with his time to join the pod and answer questions that span the entire Mage trilogy. There are some amazing reveals in this interview that you won't want to miss. So that's it. Here's the interview. Enjoy. Hey, Matt, thank you for joining on the podcast. This is super exciting. Been almost two years in the making since yeah. the podcast started, and welcome aboard. No, thanks, man. I'm so happy to be here. And, you know, I just want to say thanks to you for, uh, for putting this whole thing together over those two years and putting together a whole podcast about each and every issue. I, I got a kick out of listening to it every time, just as if I was, you know, a reader or a fan, because it was, you know, somebody else's feedback on on mage and so you know i would sometimes get all new outlooks on things so thanks so much man i'm very happy to be here to do the kind of grand finale (laughs) man what a finale it is i've got it well i won't i won't leap too far ahead but it is interesting looking back and i haven't listened to too many of the earlier episodes but i know there were plenty of times i was going down alleys and roadways that were like man what was i thinking well, but that's okay. That's that's what a story, you know, a story shouldn't be laid out and obvious. It should uh, be mysterious and lend lend itself to some interpretations that aren't quite correct that are solved by the author at a later point. It's been a wild ride. I want to respect your time here. We've got a lot of questions to go through. How about we dive in? Yeah, right on. Let's go. Okay. So, hey, first of all, you've had some time now since finishing the series, getting to the cons, getting the big published books and everything published. Now that you've had a chance to decompress a little bit from finishing the book, it's it's in your rearview mirror. What are your thoughts? How do you feel? It's it's kind of strange. I mean, uh, I, I certainly feel no uh, no remorse, no kind of oh, it's all over kind of sorrow. I feel very much like I I, I keep telling people I stuck the landing. You know, I feel like I, I got to where I wanted to go with it, even after all those many years. And of course, having no idea how it would progress and how it would develop. But I feel. Uh, I feel very proud of the fact that each of the three books are so distinctly a different period in my life and a different a different venture as a creator, and yet they hold together with a real cohesion at the same time. Really, really, really happy with all that. At the same time, you know, I will say uh, the next thing I'm working on is a Grendel project, and when I got to the end of Mage, I thought, you know, well, it's Grendel, it's mine. I I'm familiar with that. I'm going to jump right in. And it wasn't quite as easy as I thought. I was—I didn't quite realize I was quite as tapped out as I was after Mage, you know, that I was just kind of uh, creatively exhausted. I mean, everything's working fine now, but, but I was really surprised how I wasn't quite producing quite as fast as I thought I would in the immediate aftermath of Mage. It, it just, you know, again, it just feels, it feels like I said everything I wanted to say with it. It, to my mind, covers the three stages of the hero's journey, uh, a la Campbell's outline and, and archetypes, and and yet remains true to my personal reality, which is, of course, the thing that makes Mage special in the first place, is that it's uh, it's so broad and grand in a mythic sense in the archetypes that it uses and the story points that it hits. And yet it's so down to earth, just guys in t-shirts and just a family doing their thing from beginning to end. I mean, cause of course the first one has Kevin starts out as pretty much a loner, but he quickly develops a family. And the second one, he has a different family. And in the third one, he has a different family. 
And all three of those, uh, I think, reflected my life and yet also reflect the, the mythic tropes that, that I was trying to examine and play with. Did you find that as you moved from discovered to defined, that the story became more autobiographical? How, how strong was that autobiographical vibe in Discovered that eventually came to really be the hallmark of the next two it became It became much more deliberate in Defined, but I realized after the fact that, of course, everything in Discovered was pretty autobiographical as well, just not quite as uh, focused. I realized I was taking various people in my life and weaving them into this story, but not in such a distinct form as the uh, Kirby Hero and Joe Fat and those characters in Defined. But, you know, Edsel was a combination of gals I knew when I lived in Center City, Philadelphia. And Mirth was a combination of guys I knew. And Sean was a combination of several people as well. So all that stuff was there. It's just Again, I was I was running on instinct, and of course, you you know, there's the old there's the old joke. Listen, kid, I paint what I see, uh, <laughs> and you know, I just realized there was there was only one way I was going to be able to make this work, and that was just to draw on my life. Like, for instance, again, we lived in I lived in Philadelphia at that point, Center City, Philadelphia. Well, occasionally, a carload of guys and I would drive down to Atlantic City and spend some time in a casino. The back alley scenes and the street level reality is very much the the world I was walking around in at that time. And of course, you know, I I wore a lot of black t-shirts and jeans. I didn't have a lightning bolt on it, but that's that's Kevin's thing, not mine. (laughs) So originally you had planned to move ahead with Mage 2 fairly closely on the heels of the hero discovered at the ends of, uh, you know, towards the end of that, or maybe it was in other Kamiko comics at the time, there were some mentions here and there of coming soon, Mage 2, Hero Defined. What would you say changed about Kevin's story between where you were in the late 80s when you were, it looked at least like you were planning to put that together hot on the heels, and how it manifested ultimately in the 90s? Well, uh, quite honestly, it didn't manifest till the 90s due to uh, Kamiko's uh, financial and bankruptcy problems, which, of course, tied up my rights for a while. And I got to say, that was the best thing that could have happened to me in a narrative and creative sense, because, yeah, I, I had every plan just to move ahead in a couple of years. And it would have been a whole lot of adventures, kind of like the first interlude where Kevin's in France. It, it just would have been a lot of him tripping around the world and following him, fighting monsters. And it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been at such significant crux points in his life, which is what it ended up being and, and what it needed to be. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. I, again, I, 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 everything I've done on mage pretty much has been instinctual. My instinctual feelings, uh, as a storyteller, my instinctual feelings as a reader and my instinctual feelings as someone that, that pays attention to myth and mythic, uh, archetypes. The good thing was that when it finally, you know, when, when it had lingered for so long, I finally said, all right, well, it's got to linger some more. I, I, I guess I'm not ready. I guess I guess it's not, I, I don't have an idea for the next one. It's It's gone on so long now that just the idea of having Kevin tripping around the world fighting nasties just didn't appeal to me. It, it seemed um, ordinary in a way that I wanted Mage never to be. And and finally, you know, I had gone through and I now realize what I had to do was go through living more of my life, you know, have more experiences, have more change in my life, have more realizations and failures and and loves and successes and all of that before I could coalesce that into a new 
a new stage in Kevin's life. The good thing about it was it, it, it gave me distance. And the this is a hard thing to describe, but the more distance I had, the closer I felt to it. Whereas if I would have just gone ahead, it would have been the other way around, I think. I would have it would have been closer to my actual experiences I was going through at the time. But I think there would have been more distance narratively. I wouldn't have been quite as honest, probably, with um, what I was portraying. So the the years really added wisdom and added perspective that if I would have just plowed right ahead, I probably wouldn't have had. It, it sounds like the distance also kind of gave you a window for another level of, of the work just as art to develop. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It gave me a chance to get better. Yeah. Um, develop more. You know, that's another neat thing about the, the trilogy as a whole is each one of the three books has kind of its own distinct visual flair as well. Not just a uh, dis- distinct narrative flair yet again, it sure looks like it's all drawn by the same dude. You know, you'd know it's me drawing it. It's just, this was me in my early twenties. This was me in my early thirties. This was me in my mid fifties. So, uh, so yeah, all of it, all of it really, really did add up to work out in, in the best way that it could. And there again, it's almost like I had little control over it. You know, it, uh, it wrote me more than I wrote it. Yeah. It's an amazing journey. Uh, I remember waiting, waiting for Mage 2 to come out. And then obviously the bankruptcy issues with Kamiko came out. And it's interesting hearing, hearing you tell that story that in many ways that time was necessary for the story to mature and develop the way that it did. Well, not just the story. It was necessary for me to mature and develop as I did. <laughs> you know? The story would only reflect what I could give it, and I needed to mature. You know, Similarly, you know, it's kind of the reason that the third one took so much longer than even the gap between the second and the first one was I knew the third one was going to involve my wife and my kids, and there just came a point where I realized, boy, I just can't start this till I see my kids grow up more. I need to see what sort of people they're going to be. And so all of it's just necessary time that had to pass to let all those ideas ripen and mature into real fruition and a, a real story that kind of had a, a pertinent impact every single time. Now, you've, you've said that you approach creating Mage when you're actually doing the artwork for it or the script for it differently from other projects. Can you discuss a little bit of that? Sure. It's almost, uh, to put it in musical terms, it's almost a jam session. When when musicians get together, you know, sometimes they get together and just jam, and that would be, you know, in artistic terms, I'd be just sitting around and sketching. But sometimes musicians get together and they have a jam session, and it turns into something just kind of unique and wondrous, you know. That's very much kind of the way I approached Mage. And, you know, those jam sessions I'm speaking of, you know, the musicians will sit down with their instruments, and they get a feel for each other, and they start playing, and all of a sudden, things start aligning, and the and the harmonies start coming together. and And none of it's really planned out real hard and yet the the artistic creation happening at there is at the hands of skilled creators who are willing to open themselves and let themselves flow with their their artwork and their their creation you know certainly if that's different than if i'm working on um something for dc or you know something with a licensed character where i kind of have to decide i have to tell them at the beginning what's going to happen and how the story's going to end you know of course, with this, where I own everything and I'm only answerable to myself, I had the freedom to just make it all one constant jam session that that would be spontaneous and pertinent. And, you know, I have this real uh, love for a uh, samurai ideal when it comes to artwork. You know, the samurais used to say, 
so many of the the best samurai were uh, were also very skilled artists, specifically uh, Miyamoto Misashi. And of course, they they tried to treat every every brush stroke as as if it was a sword stroke, as if it was deadly, if it was as if it was absolutely necessary, and any variation was a waste. And I really try to feel that with Mage, you know, where I sit down, I don't, tr- I try to so not stress about it. I try to so not get hung up about anything. Certainly, when I'm working on licensed characters or even Grendel, there's a there's a a, a need to to plan and organize and uh, and construct. Whereas with Mage, it's more like I'm trying to deconstruct myself. You know, I'm I'm sitting there trying to just let myself flow. You know, I've I've spoken before about how the fact that I don't even really do layouts. I don't do any notes or very, very few notes. And I don't write the script in advance. I write the script after I've drawn it. I draw it and I'm making the story up as I'm drawing it. And, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm enumerating what the characters are saying, but I'm not working off a script at that point. Then I then I go back and script it. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it just feels like pure creation to me. It just feels like pure, creating pure comics, you know. That's wild. That's wild the way you, you get the, the image and the idea of, okay, well, the panel is going to tell this kind of story and this is going on, but I'll come back and, and actually bring in the details later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a turn here. And obviously for those who might be listening to this who don't know at least my history with you and the internet, back during Hero Defined, I did a little mini fan site, recapped every issue. At that time, I think it was one web page with different images taken mm-hmm, out of mm-hmm. them and telling the story. Yeah, cer- certainly not as ambitious as you've done, as you've done with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That one was much more intensely involved, a lot more time with uh, Photoshop. Uh, this certainly a lot, more, a lot more time at the microphone. I like this. I like this format a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there were a few times where uh, that experience delved into, hey, what themes are going on here? What's happening with that? So, uh, given given this storyline, given some of the comments that I see out there in fandom, and and, and my own darn persistent questioning here, I'm going to hit a few points across the entire arc of Kevin's journey: discovered, defined, and finally into denied. And I'm hoping I can give you answers. <laughs> no guarantees. <laughs> What is it? There's that uh, great story. I think the uh, that Bertrand Russell was once asked by a woman uh, about the uh, about the meaning of a poem that he wrote, and I believe his famed reply was that at the time I wrote that the meaning was known to God and I, and at this point the meaning is only known to God. Yeah, right. Yeah. If if your answer is yeah, there's nothing going on there, just the story, or it could be I don't remember. But okay, let's yeah, roll. Absolutely. <laughs> so I actually here's one thing that just as part of the process of doing this, I noticed that I never had consciously noticed before. Early on in Discovered, I was about to make a statement in one of the podcasts that it's such an organic, in-the-moment experience because you never see anybody's... There's no there's no mm. thought balloons. Yeah, I did a few of those early on. Yep. Why, mm-hmm. So why did they drop off? Why did you decide not to use that? I, I will admit the, uh, the early instances of that were just formative. You know, me not knowing what I was really doing and, and okay, well, let me try this comics have thought balloons i'm going to use thought balloons and then that just seemed you know as as i started to introduce the other characters you know the first several issues of discovered were very kevin centric mirth shows up but not many other characters for uh, several issues till till edsel shows up so we were all in kevin's head then as soon as the other characters show started showing up i realized i didn't want 
to be in Kevin's head. I wanted to, I wanted you to know about Kevin through his interactions with the other people, and I didn't really want to do their thought bubbles either. So I just kind of fell back to a, a more cinematic approach where there's no voiceover, there's no inner captions, and there's no thought bubbles. I would just have to plead that that was an organic development that just happened spontaneously without me overthinking it again. Just kind of realized, oh, this is just going to work better if I just step back and let the characters move around and, and interact. And that's how we'll know them. And that's how we'll learn about them. Cool. It, it, you know, it gives it, it does give it ultimately a very cinematic feeling because we have to read a lot into it and we have to read off of their actions. And mm-hmm. so similarly, and this might also just have to do with different stages of your career. One of the things that was a very uh, notable element of the original series was your forwards, which didn't pick up in either of the following two series. Was there any particular reason for that? Oh, probably just that I was uh, more of a pontificating youngster at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> there again, probably, probably just uh, I'd have to, plead that I was just just pulling back just just letting the story shine just letting the characters be not really injecting my own um, excess opinions into things letting it just be shown by the story and my narrative cool so I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a little bit of time digging into the other side of the chessboard you know so Kevin goes through this huge transformation of course in hero discovered but so does his adversary so does the umbra sprite he moves it moves from this thin and wiry kind of look to bloated and immobile and all the whole while it's smoking from the plant in its office so what's going on with the umbra sprites changes and transformations in the hero discovered well they were kind of you know of course the hero and the and the and his ultimate villain always have a connection. So I would say that they're you know every time the villain's around, it's a little bit of a, a dark reflection of myself. You know, I've constantly throughout my life fluctuated in weight. I've never been enormously fat, but I've I've been fitter at times and not fitter at times. I was not only smoking a huge amount of pot in those early days of discovered, but you know I was experimenting with some other pharmaceuticals as well. So the Umber Sprite's bloated descent into obsession and uh, inertia was probably just me reflecting my fears of, you know, what could possibly happen to me if I didn't keep on top of things and keep focused and keep the good fight in, in sight. And, uh, and you know, there but, there but for the grace of the universe go I, you know. Cool. It sounds like some of that may have been planned and purposeful, and some of that may have just been stuff that crept into the art. As in everything in Mage. (laughs) (laughs) It's half half deliberate and half like, what the fuck? (laughs) Oh, so that's what that meant. Um, (laughs) So along these lines, then the Umbra Sprite's headquarters in the first book is this sleek modern high-rise. You mentioned going to Atlantic City, going to the casinos. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's the office building. Whether I'm reading too much into it or not, I love the fact that it's an insurance company in the Mm -hmm. third book. Mm -hmm. But Emil, in in the second book, is literally, in stark contrast, underground in a much more fantastical environment. Was there a reason for the distinct difference in the settings for the two antagonists? Yeah, well, if you didn't notice, Emil's not very good at it, is he? (laughs) Yeah, and he has uh, he has all these notions of grandeur about what he's supposed to be in regards to being a grand sorceress bad guy, and thus he you know he's wearing all these different crazy 
wizard hats and you know he speaks he speaks much more verbosely and dramatically than he does in the first one in the first one he's kind of you know cut and dried hard hard bitten seeing through the bullshit then you know when the uh when the mantle falls to him to carry on his father's legacy as he imagines it he keeps trying to do it and trying to do it pretty badly pretty uh silly not realizing that his father's there kind of waiting for him to fuck up the whole time almost in a sacrificial fashion you know that the the umber sprite as he's kind of regathering his power there during to find is willing to let emil go and do everything he wants to do but he doesn't really expect he's going to succeed so the difference there is deliberate yeah the other thing about you mentioned about the big sleek office buildings you know i grew up very very rural very rural and in the middle of uh, Amish country in Pennsylvania. And, you know, unlike a lot of my friends and colleagues, I had a real fascination with the city. Definitely unlike my parents. My parents were very uh, kind of anti-city. And I had this longing to go to the city and find the culture that so enthralled me. Books, TV, films, comics, narratives that that let you dream and take you other places and yet at the same time once i got to that city although i liked the flow of all that culture and the flow of all that humanity at the same time you know anytime i was in a a place that was big and severe and powerful like the casinos like the the office buildings even though it was kind of awed by the power i felt uh, i felt out of place and felt like this was not me i had a much more homegrown sort of personality and sitting at the top of the world in a cold, sterile office and staring out at the, the, the peons below you didn't really appeal to me and still doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's why, you know, so much of what Kevin goes through takes place on a real street level. You know, we never really we we often just don't get off the street or out of like a, a house. And that's that's deliberate because that's where that's where life goes on, in my opinion. So with Emil. And and I'm gonna go off into into my own headcanon territory here a little bit, or just test a few mm-hmm. things off. You know, also it, it strikes me that by the time you got to the second book, uh, you had gone from, of course, first of all, not being aware of Joseph Campbell and the Hero of a Thousand Faces, despite you know, the amazing similarities that your story structure goes through. Which you know, frankly, I think just shows that you were tapping into that great mythic heroic story as as you were going along. But this is underground, and there was a great, there was also, you know, Campbell uh, was very close to Jung. There's a great schism mm-hmm. between, you know, Freud and Jung, and, and underground, as I'm looking at this, as I was looking at this recently, going through Denied, I was thinking, you know, is there something going on here with Emil and, you know, the unconscious? And, you know, the Spriggenflints, for instance, of course, you mentioned he was doing it badly, and it's like the movie Multiplicity. Michael Keaton makes copies of himself, makes clones of himself. The clones make a clone of themselves, and they say, "You know, the copy of yeah." And and they're 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 twice as bad. They're twice as <laughs> right. useless. Yeah. <laughs> so I looked at this Brigandflints, and I was like thinking, "Oh, it's a copy of a copy. It's just really not that bright." Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. is the Brigandflint mm-hmm. Sigmund named after Sigmund Freud, or am I going off the deep end here? No, yeah, not on <laughs> purpose. I mean, you know, I can't say that it wasn't influenced by that, but no, that wasn't uh, that wasn't purposeful. Um, but yeah, you, you tapped into something really, really clear there, is that both the Grackleflints and the Gracklethorns are both very, very capable, albeit uh, kind of slavish to their uh, their parents' wants and needs. But the the Sprigginflints are just, you know, little indolent assholes. They're just... 
they're 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 not very engaged. They you know they do what they're told, but you know they'd rather just kind of be hanging out and and you know torturing some poor bogey. You know, but yeah, there again, even even uh, Emil's uh, progeny don't live up to his father's progeny. Yeah, absolutely, and and it is an amazing transformation he goes through. He, I mean, the the Grapplethorns very much in the first series do come across as I mean they're very thuggish. They're very you know street level thug villains with flints. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm getting thorns the, I'm, on the third one. Yep. I know, it's too damn many grackles. <laughs> I'm like thinking it through as I'm forming the quest, as I'm forming the statement, I'm like going, am I going to get it backwards? But now one thing I know that you seem to acknowledge in the letter column of Hero Defined, and I'm bringing this up in a way because, of course, in reprints and such, some of these dialogues, some of these uh, get lost. But there's a lot of sexually coded imagery in Hero Defined. There was one letter writer oh, yeah, who sure. pointed out a particular mm-hmm. sequence with you know Kevin, Kirby, and Joe when they're fighting the Spriggan Flints. There's the cover of issue number nine. So what role did that play as part of your storytelling? Oh, it, 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 sex is a part of all my storytelling. Uh, sex is life. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I, you know, again, I, I, I was an only child, and luckily my parents kind of raised me not to be really ashamed of sex, unlike a lot of people of my generation. We tried to pass that on to our own children. But whether you're ashamed of it or not, whether it's forefront or not, it's it's there it's the it's the primal primal motivator in in every myth in every in almost every action yeah it's it's all there i try to not be super blatant about it but but if you if you wanted to really carve it up it's it's there very 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 blatantly you know the same way uh in the ancient myths and the ancient religions for instance uh the ancient greek religions especially the the presence of genitalia as a visual metaphor both male and female as a visual metaphor for various aspects of life was very, very uh, common. You know, it was very common in ancient Greece to find a, a totem of a a local deity, you know, and he would have a giant raging heart on. And nobody thought anything of it. It was just like, well, yeah, that, that, that's a powerful, that's a cedar there. That's, <laughs> that's somebody that can breed. So all that's, uh, all that's very much there and very purposeful. But again, it, it's not about, sex but sex informs it all does that make sense to you is that yeah, a... definitely so there's no there's no sex scenes at all in mage none at all there's no nudity there's no you know well no actually kevin and kevin and magda have a few little flings there but it's it's not well and of course joe joe fat gets seduced by <laughs> leon and she so it's just not I, I wouldn't call it a a sexy book but it's a sexual book for right sure. and the the imagery you know, there's definitely a sexual chemistry. You know, I, I did an interview uh, recently, and somebody pointed out to me that one of the things they liked about Mage was the fact that um, I so clearly uh, don't shy away from the description of, especially in today's kind of confused times, I don't shy away from the, the fact of the anima and the animus, the, you know, the feminine power and the masculine power. And and I, I answered that by saying, well, you know, that's just it's just there. It's everywhere that you look around, you know? I mean, uh, my wife and I have a... a wonderful relationship. We've been together a long time. We have a beautiful home, beautiful family life. And yet when I look around our house, I realize it was her power that created our household. I might have probably paid for most of it, but she's the one that created it. It's her magic that created how our house looks, the the beautiful environment we live in, the uh, the safe and secure and lovely environs that make up our family home and that's that's all her i really didn't have anything to do with that so when i'm presented with that reality and i i can't ignore it how can i 
not talk about it in my most personal work. So when you go into some great things about women's magic and men's magic in a variety of ways, I think it works on a few different levels because you've got charts and uh, graphs and you've got raw power in some areas. I think you seems like you're talking about a few different things there that I'm going to stay away from right now. But uh, <laughs> the rabbit hole goes really deep, man. Uh, <laughs> it does. It does. And of course, you know, I just want to point out there's no... Uh... There's no better or worse, you know, there's no, uh, one's not superior to the other. No, absolutely. And there's no definition. You mentioned a particular area and it made me think of, you know, male magic, male power, female magic, female power. The lines also aren't as cut and dry about how those manifest themselves as, you know, you might say that and people might think, oh, well, a man's power manifests in these ways and woman's power manifests in these ways. The, the lines just aren't that clear, but they're both there. So I'm yeah. going to take, you had mentioned this, that with Emil, it was rather silly, but Emil isn't the only person who has changing hats in Hero Defined. And so what's going on with Wally and uh, the hats as well? Well, that's just a, that's just a furthering of what I said, how the, uh, a little bit earlier there about how the, you know, the villain and the hero will kind of reflect each other. Wally was, Wally was kind of a manifestation of my dad, in his older days, although he didn't really look like Wally, he wasn't bald, he didn't have a big fuzzy beard, but you know, he was big on big declarations, the same way Wally was. But of course, Wally, uh, I think you mentioned this in your last episode, Wally is the, the whereas Mirth is the, the beacon that lets the villain find the heroes in the first one, Wally is the disguise, Wally, Wally blocks that. And Wally can only do that as a result of having Edsel's hat, uh, of having... Uh, Something that reminds him of his humanity, that reminds him of love. You no, know, I just thought it was. I try to. I try to throw in things sometimes that are just right in front of your face because I, I will say I don't think anybody realized that was Edsel's hat, even though it's a purple hat this guy's wearing the entire time. I felt like a freaking idiot when I saw yeah, that reveal until the, the very <laughs> end, right? <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, once I started to realize, oh, I can just make it change shape all the time into different kinds of hats, then that just became a giant playground to just wait around in. And, you know, every time Wally had a burst of some kind of personality, let's say, you know, the hat would change shape to reflect what was going on in his crazed little pronunciations, you know. Well, I've got to admit, I was led down the road to ask that question. There was the uh, what I consider the infamous autobiography that somebody sent in during Mage 2 which, you know, ended with magic is hats. So I thought, you know, I, 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 need to, I need to dig into that there. So speaking of you know, Mirth being this beacon, and I think you even have it mentioned in in Hero Defined, uh, Wally is this neat play off of the trope of the secret identity. He's Kevin's secret identity. In Hero Denied, Kevin's really hiding in plain sight, uh, assumedly living under Magda's last name of Hunter, which is, of course, mm -hmm. the first name of your original, the, the first Grendel, Hunter Rose. Maybe not chronologically, but at least... Yeah, it has nothing uh, to do with that. It's a, uh, it's one translation of my wife's maiden name, Schutz, in German. It means a shooter or a hunter. <laughs> that is that that is beautifully poetic in a sense, though. Never. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Schutz. Now I know for sure. I think I, I think there's a million times during the podcast I was saying, "Am I saying this last name right?" <laughs> Um, yeah, shoots, shoots or shuts, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Kevin's non-heroic lifestyle seems to really cause a lot of the personal friction 
at home early in Hero denied. You know, at one point, Kevin even says that this is all I know. You know, this is all I know what to do. Can you talk about that dynamic, that friction that was going on in the story? Sure. My uh, I married into a, a kind of traditional family, a very traditional Catholic family. And, you know, I've had periods in my life where I've had a, a group studio with other artists or creators, but uh, I've had also long periods where I work at home. And let me just tell you, when you work at home and you're in a kind of somewhat urban neighborhood or, you know, <laughs> even a suburban neighborhood, people are always looking at you like, what's that guy do? <laughs> I never see him leave for work in the morning. He seems to be there all day. Is he a drug dealer? What the hell? What's he do? So there, there was that kind of uh, conundrum where I, I just never really quite fit in where I was living. And then, and then there's also the conundrum of the fact that, you know, when you work at home like I do, when you have a home studio, you're always kind of at work, right? <laughs> you have to learn, and this took me a while, you have to learn how to shut that off, how to walk out of the studio and you shut the door like you would leave your office and not think about it that much again. But also it's, it's a reflection of... It's a reflection of, you know, when uh, I can only speak here from a male perspective, but when you get married, you have to adapt to a different reality, a different, you sacrifice certain things, but you gain many things. But it sometimes takes you a while to get used to establishing that balance. And, you know, for myself, I mean, part of that was kind of having to somewhat give up the uh, artistic camaraderie that I had experienced so much, especially in the period of Defined, you know, I mean, obviously I had a, a posse of my fellow artists that I hung with all the time. Well, you got to let that go. Partied a lot more than I did, you know, once I got married. All those are, are just things about the balance of life. And then, of course, once you have children, that balance changes even more. And I think every Every person, I can specifically say every man, I think, once they have children and their children start to grow, they start to question, God, what, uh, do I even matter anymore? What, what is my role? Am I only here to like protect these, these little vulnerable creatures and make sure they make it to maturity and, and uh, survive intact and happy and healthy and engaged and intelligent? Do I have any role other than that anymore? And then I think hopefully after a while you realize that maybe that's your most your important role. You know, that the acquiescence to the fact that life will go on and you have a role in making sure life goes on safely, healthily, happy, intelligent. That's almost the biggest role of heroism you could you could enact, I think. And, you know, as a uh, as a father, that w- what you've just said speaks to me. And you know that that journey again, maybe not for every man, and maybe not in the exact same words, but but that journey that you've discussed is close enough that I can say, yeah, I I, I recognize that journey. I recognize that journey from single to married to having a child, and you know, and the confusion that comes with that. Yeah, right? and and I think it's interesting because I was listening to in a completely different range on a completely different property. I was listening to a podcast around a TV show recently where they easily dropped in for half an hour about a discussion about the difference of the interpretation of something between the people who were doing the review who have children and the interpretation of the people who don't. And yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You just have to. You, you just have to. You, you go through the experience. But no, that that definitely resonates. So in Hero Denied, as is finally revealed when we get to the end of the story with the imp 
being Mirth in his wild child form. Why does Mirth run away when Kevin first, find, first finds him? He's too fucked up. <laughs> he can't. He can't speak correctly. He's too under the. Uh, he's too under the influence of the spell he's cast on himself, which basically uh, brings his uh, dark side forward to disguise his green side. And and here again, just like the hat in uh, Define, I really put this out there, kind of right mm-hmm. out in the open. You know, he's he's wearing what looks like Mirth's cloak. Got not exactly the same hairdo, but yeah, virgin on it. But He's so, uh, he's so not mirth. He's, he seems crazy and wild and can't, can't speak right and runs away every time he sees Kevin, you know? So that's all just very deliberate. And, and yeah, at that point he's, he's just too, uh, he can't quite get himself together mm-hmm. to give Kevin the advice he needs. You got to remember mirth isn't perfect. <laughs> mirth, mirth, mirth can mess up just like, uh, just like Kevin can. He might know a lot of the answers, but he doesn't know all of them. So that's what happened there. Speaking of all that, one of the things I was doing there to help disguise the fact that that was Mirth was to include that flashback sequence of the issue of number issue number five of Denied, where we see Kevin and Mirth in the aftermath of Discovered, kind of in between the end of Discovered and the beginning of the uh, first interlude, where they're hunting a creature down in the sewers. And did that deliberately because uh, really wanted you, the reader to want Mirth to come back as much as Kevin wanted Mirth to come back. So that when Mirth did come back, you'd be very receptive to him coming back the same way Kevin was very receptive to him coming back. Nice. That's dirty pool. <laughs> yeah, that's what storytellers do. We don't play fair. <laughs> and, you know, the whole white hair, dark hair thing, you know, that was all very deliberate too, to, to kind of throw you off the scent that second mirth had dark hair whereas last time we saw him he had white hair last time we saw him even in this series he had white hair Mm -hmm. but i give the explanation about joe and so that's plausible and that kind of takes the edge off that but yeah kevin's uh mirth's just uh mirth's just all messed up because he's uh he's too much uh you know as as you pointed out in your last episode you know in the legends mirth is the product of a, a a demon and a human you know he's kind of a mix of good and bad and that's how he's able to have his power and tap into magic that's beyond the scope of normal human wielding. But yeah, he's just, uh, he's just as he describes it, a wild child. He's just in a fugue state. He can't, he can't really get his words together. Well, and one of the results of that is that, really, Kevin wanders through a lot of Mage 3, mageless. And, and frankly, even in Mage 2, I mean, Waliat is often not on the scene or he's peripherally handling things without mention He's very active in the climax, and as we get towards that closing third of the story, that third act, other than what you've mentioned, what's different about Mirth's manifestations across the three books and Kevin's journey? And does it say anything that Kevin kind of has to go through this final act for the most part on his own? Yeah, with each stage, he has to go through it on his own. He has to go through, you know, again, the mage, the mentor is there. You know, it's it's like being a parent. You know, the the you're you're most present. You're most directing your child and teaching them. You know, no wait, don't walk out in traffic. No wait, don't pick your nose in front of people. No wait, make sure you wear clean underwear. All those things when they're when they're quite young. And then hopefully, if you're a successful parent, you learn to draw back a bit and be a a wiser, older presence that is sometimes and normally. Uh, routinely ignored <laughs> in the second stage of your child's life. And then in the third stage, hopefully your child is, is able to wander around on their own and not get destroyed by the world. And and yet you're there if they need them. 
you know, you're there to step in if everything goes bad. And that's basically what Mirth, those are the three stages that Mirth goes through. So if you if you haven't answered that already with that, and not to get too personal, but, you know, Mage is an allegorical autobiography. What or who is Mirth to you, Matt Wagner, across the books? And I'll, I'll tip one thing, for instance, there's a reading uh, that's possible of looking at this and saying, okay, Mirth is, you know, Mirth represents Matt Wagner's ability to create and be an artist. It's his artistic connection. But so what is it? What is what is Mirth to you? Well, yeah, Mirth is definitely that, but uh, again, Mirth is the the various um, the various stages of wisdom that I didn't know I needed. So in the first one, again, I was raised very rurally. I was raised in a family that really didn't have much art in their lives. I won't say we were bereft of art, but you know, my parents didn't understand leading a creative life. Although my mom was an English teacher, she loved literature, she loved music, she loved creative things, but. I was never presented with an option that that might be something I would do with my life. Mirth in the first stage were those folks, a, a culmination of those folks that when I went to the city and started meeting people that invigorated me in a way to think that this was something I could do, that I could create, that I could weave narratives and, and tell stories as a purpose to my life. Mirth was a culmination of that. In the second one, Mirth was more a culmination of my past reminding me that don't get too full of yourself. You're not that special just because you can tell stories. <laughs> uh, you better be telling the right kind of stories. <laughs> and then, and then in the third one, Mirth was—I I think Mirth was Mirth was probably the reminder. I don't think that I really needed the reminder, but Mirth is still the reminder of what it means to be a parent and and to be a hero in that sense of the word, that you will sacrifice everything for the safety and well-being of another human. It's hard to hard to imagine that for most people. I think as a parent, though, that's definitely, I mean, maybe not all parents, but it kind of goes with the territory. It's why you see parents put themselves at risk for children. You you see news stories about that here and there. I mean, that's your child. It's the, you know, mama, papa, bear kind of instinct. Yeah. Yep. So let's take a, let's veer a little bit here. Talk about the other side of the uh, chessboard for a moment. And this is kind of a very top level, just curiosity question with the Umber Sprite. Was there any particular reason you chose San Francisco for the Umbra Sprites headquarters in Hero Denied. Oh, mainly because uh, when we, I, I needed another urban center because I, I knew, you know, when the Umbra Sprite came back, he was going to be, she was going to be, and uh, it was going to be in, uh, in another uh, high rise. And at the time that we first became parents, Barb and I, we were living in the Bay Area. We weren't in San Francisco. We were in San Jose. But when we first became parents, we were in that area. And then due to a great disaster, like what happens in Denied, and in my personal case, it was the fact that Kamiko went under. And of course, both Mage and Grendel were tied up in bankruptcy court. So my my power, my livelihood was destroyed for me briefly. We had to flee that area and move to Portland, move, move north to get away from an area we couldn't afford anymore and find refuge somewhere else. So so that that was the main gist of that. It's not like I had any uh, enormous connection to San Francisco, but I, again, I just needed another urban center and it wasn't going to be LA because there aren't any there aren't enough tall buildings in LA. <laughs> and that's a, that's basically that. So with the Umbra Sprite, 
about his masquerade as mirth, how did he come to manifest? This seems like an intimate detail for the Umbra Sprite to be able to tap into. How did he come to manifest through the ATM a la that great moment with Edsel and Mirth in Hero Discovered? And what's up with the arm wrappings when Mirth previously only had leg wrappings? He doesn't manifest through the ATM. Ooh. <laughs> am, I mis- am I misremembering? Am I, um... No, no, you're not misremembering. This is just one of those many instances where I, I don't like to over-explain shit in Mage sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I explain stuff very distinctly, and sometimes it's like, well, you got to figure that one out on your own, and if you don't, it doesn't really matter. He doesn't. He, he, uh, he it, let's call it it, it sinks into the, the pit of its own uh, darkness there, into the, the fountain, the dark fountain, and it's just watching. So when, when Kevin goes to the ATM and he decides to, you know, all right, fuck you, I'm going to push the button. I'm going to demand $10 million to get you to respond to me. That is the genuine failsafe that Mirth built into the card. Like, if Kevin ever got lordly and got kingly like that and got egotistical and stupid, the machine would eat the card. And the Umber Sprite saw the machine eat the card because he can see Kevin very clearly, especially when he's using his power and he has just used his power out there in the woods. And he chose that moment to step forward. He said, "This is a good. This is a good time." So the arm wrappings are, uh, you know, I, I, this is kind of a curious thing in in regards to creation. I, I had done some sketches where what's fake Mirth going to look like when he comes back? Is he going to be more? Because of course the Umber Sprite is uh, very stylish, right? Wears uh, pinstripe suits and is always clipped and trimmed very perfectly, you know. And that's not Mirth. Mirth's kind of a ragamuffin. So how's that going to affect how Mirth looks? So I did a variety of sketches that were yeah just a little too overboard and obvious and didn't really connect me to mirth and then i suddenly struck on the idea of like oh wait i'm gonna wrap up his arms too his arms aren't gone now but i'm gonna wrap up his arms and the point is those are the ember sprites magical bindings that will protect him if he has to dip into using green magic to prove to kevin that he is mirth and when kevin says to him something about his bindings and he says you know that my my arms are scarred from having fought well they're not scarred yet because of course the right isn't really telling him the truth the entire time they're not scarred yet but they might be if he has to use green magic and of course the one time he has to use green magic it's to raise miranda from or heal miranda from her injuries and and in my mind anyway yeah that scars the shit out of his arms <laughs> its arms excuse me but there again there's just there's certain things you just I don't know. You just don't need to explain that. It's let let the reader figure that out or imagine that out or feel that out. Whatever. I didn't I didn't feel like I needed to overdo that one. That's awesome. Although a nice bit of misdirection, it really does lend. You've got that whole burst of bubbles coming forth from the ATM, flooding Kevin in that evocative of that scene. So it makes it easy. It makes it easy, of course, for. Well, yeah, it's misdirection <laughs> there again because the last time we saw that big burst of bubbles, it was Kevin's savior popping out right (laughs) and this time it's cutting him off it's like well you fucked up dude we're taking the card (laughs) well that's and you get some interesting there are you know to detour here there are some amazing atm moments in this third book you you get that moment after the showdown with uh, aresh kagal you get the moment where he comes back and it's kind of like pleading trying to reason and make sense you've even got the couple you threw the couple in the back kind of looking at the crazy guy by the atm and then this scene it, it was fun seeing even how you have the kids mention it you know are you going to go have a conversation because because here again man it, just in a just in a to tie it into a uh, an everyman sort of scenario if you're a young father you haven't stood in front of an ATM or 
your computer screen and wondered about how much money's in there and how the hell you're going to make it work. You're not you're not having the same fatherly experience I had, put it that way. <laughs> so with this, the appearance of the Umbra Sprite, what does it what does it mean and again, you know, if anything, ultimately that in a way Kevin's final mentor on this last little leg of the road is the Umbra Sprite. I mean, he's on this road trip with his enemy. It's false. It's a false prophet. It's a false yeah. prophet, isn't it? Yeah, you've got to meet the enemies in bed with you. I will point out, too, the last time we ever see Kevin use a bat, he uses it to hit Mirth. Oh, yeah. Well, conditionally. But no, that's wild, yeah. yeah. But that's the image. <laughs> so is that something you had planned out, or is that something that came out through the process? That's something that came out through the process. So much of it is, you know, I, I, I like to pretend like I'm on top of all this, but I'm not. I'm, again, I just got to stress, I'm tapping into a a primal archetypical power here that just worked out, because that's, sometimes that's the way it works. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know that was going to happen till the moment I drew it. Uh, there were so many things in the, especially in the final one, I didn't know were going to happen until I drew them. But there again, I think that's part of the power of why Mage works. No, no, no pun intended. I mean, it is a striking image, but it is a great thing to note that, yeah, that, that's the last time he uses a bat. And it destroys the bat. It's the end of the bat. It's the end of, it's the end of him being able to do that. It's the end of him. It's the last time we see him being able to ignite a weapon. Right, because he can't take anything in the Umbra Sprite's headquarters, and it's uh, it, it yep. lines in with the needling. I mean, that just that vicious needling, that passive-aggressive kind of, I'm your friend, but I'm not really, you know, oh, that's your last bat, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've said to people, if you go back and reread everything that fake Mirth says once he shows up, read it knowing he's the bad guy, it all takes mm-hmm. a different tone. Up until then, it's kind of, well, he's kind of a dick but that's kind of like what a you know that's kind of what your sergeant has to do in the army you got to like kick the guy in the butt and tell him to get up and get rolling but but no no it's a lot of it's a lot of the umber sprite bragging about how powerful their enemy is and uh, how hopeless his cause is and how you better be careful or you're gonna fuck up and ruin everything and it's just instilling fear and doubt and 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 the possibility of defeat yeah it really man you had me going there at the end for a while i was like okay i know exactly what's going on here and then i'm like going yeah but you know, Mirtha wasn't always like, you know, nicey nice with Kevin. So I could No, he wasn't always nicey nice, but he was he also wasn't uh, denigrating. He was he was come on, Kevin, get up. You can do this. It's you. You know you can do this. And fake Mirth doesn't really do that. <laughs> right. He never he never Mirth real Mirth never sowed doubt. He called Kevin on his bullshit and he helped urge him along. So in that big showdown at the Empress Sprite's headquarters, uh, there's a scene where Magda blasts Sasha, the Gracklethorn, I think it's Sasha, right out the window with a star charm. Now, maybe I missed something. Uh, where did that star charm come from? Yeah, because I, I heard that in your last podcast. So that, that little star that she has on her face, like from the first time we see her, that we think is either a tattoo or a, a mole or a birthmark, a beauty mark, my wife would call it. My wife has a quote-unquote beauty mark of her own right there in that same spot. Uh, I made it a star. It turns out, no, that's that's a spell that she has that she carries around with her all the time that she can pluck off her face and... You know, at the last second of the last dire moment, she can enact to do, eh, I would say, several things. I haven't really worked that out. But uh, in that case, she uses it just to create this giant force push to, like, thrust that, that Grackle Flint out the window and to her death. Thorn. Thorn. Yes! <laughs> Touche, my friend. <laughs> 
Um, no, that's awesome. I'm going to have to go back and uh, I'm going to have to go back and look at that. Yeah, there's a little panel where you can see her peeling it off her face. Yep. Very cool. So, hey, Denied is neck deep in Celtic and Arthurian fairies. Like, I mean, the dark kind. You, Man, you sent me to Wikipedia and all sorts of blogs that I had never been to before. How much research were you doing to populate the monsters of this tale? And well, was there a reason that you decided to lean back into the Arthurian? Well, so because, uh, uh, you know, again, the, the second... The second series was all about opening Kevin's viewpoint to the fact that it's not all about you, and there's other people doing this too, and, uh, you know, there's heroes all over the world, and you're not the only one, and, you know, that was a direct result of my my experiencing, you know, after my initial flush of success as a creator, uh, the initial flush of meeting other creators who were going through the same experience. So then, when I went back to defi- uh, Denied, the fact that Kevin had kind of buried himself and kind of was denying his connection to any sort of his heroic destiny or actions. To my mind, in his own mind, he would still be clinging to what Mirth had told him initially, which was that you are the Pendragon. So that would be how he identifies. And in fact, then when Ereshkigal comes to fight him, he's like, no, 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 I'm not the Sumerian. I'm not the Sumerian. I No, leave me alone. I'm not the Sumerian. <laughs> Doesn't work. He has to fight her. But uh, it just... I felt like I had made the statement I needed to make about other myth cycles in the second one. And now I was bringing it full circle back to the Arthurian cycles, the Celtic cycles in the last one to connect to the first one, because you know, the beginning is the end. The end is the beginning. The, the circle is all awesome. Um, as he's fighting some of those, I noticed throughout the series, Kevin tends to be fond of the phrase silence filth. I mean, he repeats it a few times. Is it just you like the way it sounds, or is there something else going you know, on there? A little bit. It's a little bit of the fact that Kevin can't let go of the fact that he was told he was King Arthur. <laughs> so it's a little lordly, isn't it? Right? It's a little like you know, shut up. You don't deserve to talk to me. You're just fucking shit. And and <laughs> and sure, that's what these monsters are. Because of course, you know, when he fights these monsters, he's he goes through, um, you know, he enacts kind of terrible violence on these creatures, but they're not real creatures. They're manifestations of something dark and unhealthy. And so the only way he knows how to say that is silence filth. And, you know, again, it was just, I figured every, every very established hero needs a little catchphrase. That was his. Okay, that's cool. So going on over to the other side of the fence here, Carol does a very, you know, I went off on this whole tangent here for a while, and I wasn't quite sure if it was going to stick. But there was that moment after Carol first sees Kevin wield his power, she at least for a while there, she is the only close to voice of reason. Uh, And as you mentioned earlier, with Emil, you know, there's that there's that doubt, there's looking at things and saying, hey, wait a second, is this really going to go the way it needs to go? Uh, Mother is a pile of snakes, and we don't know what the hell to do next. Uh, what's going on here? But she seems to go from being the reasonable one to attacking the Fisher King pretty quickly. Well, the, no, the Embersprite orders her to do it. Um, and the Embersprite just figures, okay, you got to recognize that, the yes, Carol is basically Emile's little sister. Um, <laughs> she's the one that, that, has, that isn't just a, a slavish follower, although she... Still wants to achieve her mother's purposes, but when the Umber Sprite orders her to do that, the Umber Sprite orders her to do it. it. Says kill him because the Umber Sprite is getting ready to kill, or thinks she's getting ready to kill. It's getting ready to kill. I keep using these gender terms that don't really apply to the Umber Sprite, or really to the the 
flints or the thorns either. They're not gendered in a human sense. She's going to kill Kevin's family, so destroy the... uh, She's going to bring low and destroy the purpose of the hero and bleed the Fisher King. And that those are the things she needs to do to enact the ritual that will bring forth her quote unquote mother and release despair onto the world. And we've seen before the Ember Sprite is perfectly willing to sacrifice her children. No problem to achieve this goal. Mm-hmm. Where of course, <laughs> Kevin is Kevin and Magda both are not willing to sacrifice their children for any purpose or any cause or any, 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 Thing. So, you know, I think uh, the Ember Sprite at that point fully expects that, you know, maybe maybe Carol will get destroyed doing this, but that's okay. So long as she bleeds him, that's all I need. So yeah, Carol, even though she is the one voice of reason, in the end, she is still her mother's slave. Because as soon as mom says, I need you, honey, do this, she steps up and says, you know, God, I never imagined it would be me. I thought it would be Olga. I thought Olga's the tough one. I thought Olga would strike the final blow. And she does not succeed in being the individualist that would break her mother's yoke. And she pays the price by, of course, you know, getting burned to a crisp. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that afterwards also. And there's a, I think I heard you made a, make a mention in an interview when talking about, about the thorns. And, and I was thinking that even whatever hope I might've had for anything other that could have happened with Carol is that in the end, she's still, well, she's still a monster. I mean, she's still a creature of darkness. Yeah, and she's and she's vile and she's cruel and she wants she wants she wants darkness to reign because and the point is she doesn't even want that. That's that's what her mother wants. That's what her progenitor wants. That's the only thing she can imagine. She can imagine a little different ways of getting there than her siblings, but but she can't imagine more than that. And, and I've got to say, by the way, some of the uh, and, and <laughs> great reveal after waiting for the Fisher King for so long. That reveal of the Fisher King coming in to the mission, and then also the transformation, that one page of, I think it's nine different manifestations of the Fisher King mm-hmm. was just just remarkable, just really lush and really tasty. Thanks a lot. So th- those are all, basically, those are all, you know, the Fisher King is a, um, well, it's a, it's a middle, excuse me, a medieval extension of the Christ myth. And basically what that is, is a, uh, a mythological, a mythological deification of regeneration, of renewal. Uh, so all the characters that the uh, Fisher King turns into on that page there are all, you know, aspects from various cultures of a mythological character that exemplifies life renewing itself, life going on, regardless of any wound, regardless of any travails, regardless of any hardships. Even down to the joking, uh, the spring chicken. <laughs> because, because that's the whole point about the spring chicken. You know, the spring chicken's going to, next spring you're going to have another chicken <laughs> to kill, you know. But, you know, I mean, part of that was the, the whole San Francisco hippie scene, you know. But the point was it didn't, that didn't matter. It didn't matter how it's visualized right now. You know, people have said to me, you know, well, why did the Fisher King just show up there? Why, why did he sacrifice himself? Because again, it's, it's, a, it's a messianic figure and a messianic figure will sacrifice itself for the greater good. Unlike the hero, which will fight to the final blood drop to ensure that evil doesn't win, the messianic figure will say, like Obi-Wan, if you strike me down, Darth, I will become only more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Wow. That is, yeah, that that's a, you're leaving me speechless. One nice touch, one thing I liked, I won't say exactly hidden, but I didn't notice it the first time around, was when the family is in front of their home, 
there's the the Green River Realty sign. Yeah. That was a nice touch. And then how does Hugo get to a, having a, a bolt hoodie to match his high tops? Is that just part of a uh, remake of them? Of the fixing no, the no, no. That's when, uh, that's when Kevin blasts him. Because you remember uh, in Defined, when uh, oh. Bart Gretsch, uh Isis's husband lover at the time, the giant, when he gets attacked by the Sprigginflints, Kevin blasts the venom out of him, too, and he's left with a mage baseball cap, which is, you know, just a shameless bit of promotional marketing, but <laughs> at one level, but, uh, but, you know, at the end there, yeah, uh, I, I deliberately, I don't know if you noticed, we had, we had been marketing mage hoodies for, I don't know, six, seven, eight months before the final reveal on the final panel on the last page that, the, that there's a mage hoodie, and very deliberately kind of kept you away from seeing that until... We get to the end, and we know Kevin's done. And here's Hugo wearing a mage jersey. And and if you'll really notice, he's not looking at the house, is he? He's kind of looking off to the right, to the future. Yeah, he's looking off to the side. He's the one, he's just kind of, yeah, standing almost in an observing kind of position. But yeah, looking off to the side. Yep. Nice. nice. One, one other thing, uh, the hunter. Hunter plays a big role in this. Uh, can you talk about the hunter... Um, you know, is that scene in Discovered where, you know, Kevin refuses, he says, I'm not guilty. And then we get, obviously, the hunter comes for Hugo. The hunter still wants Kevin. What, what's the role of the hunter in the story? The hunter is guilt. That's why Kevin's able to get rid of it the first time. He says, no, I'm not guilty. I, I acted. I helped. In the second one, the hunter points at him and says, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. You didn't recognize the mage. You were too full of yourself. You're guilty. And Kevin takes a move to not be guilty, to correct what he had done. And then, of course, the fear of every parent is that you're going to fail your children somehow. And the hunter comes back to pursue Kevin once again. And luckily, it's Kevin's bond with his wife that drives the hunter away and and saves them from uh, from having to confront that. That was beautiful, having that last. And, and it was... Well, there again, I was... I told- that's all my misdirection, and you know, I was really hoping nobody was going to remember that he enchanted her wedding ring. You know, I mean, even though we we saw her wedding ring leading her to him, once his power is gone, it was like, oh yeah, shit. There's one more little spark there, yeah. isn't there? Well, well played. <laughs> A lot of nice things just hidden, kind of in plain sight, but then not given so much attention that they're going to be top of top of mind. What would you say across the across the series? Do you have a few moments that either as a story or as creating the story? are some of your favorite moments to have created or just favorite moments of narrative? Well, I guess my favorite moments are the moments that are transformative for Kevin because I have other great moments, I think. Mirth coming out of the ATM when Kevin's stricken. We've kind of... Narratively, we've kind of forgotten that Mirth's in the ATM and that they have an access to getting him out by that point. The fact that when Etzel goes and gets him out, that that's a big moment. That That really works narratively in that sequence. I knew at the beginning of Define that I was going to destroy the bat. So when I destroy the bat at the end of Define, I will say that's a big fucking shock to people. It's almost more a shock than Etzel dying. Well, let's see what else. The big moment, the the foldout in Denied. <laughs> when I came time to script that, because again, as I've mentioned here in this interview, I draw, I kind of draw the story first and then I write the script. And, you know, I got to the point of scripting it and I was like, okay, so what does Kevin say, right? He has to say something here. Oh, man, he's just going to scream, Excalibur! <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a good moment for me, too. Because <laughs> I, I remember I kind of sat there and just kind of giggled to myself for about 30 seconds. Yeah, that works. Uh, <laughs> um, 
I don't know. You know, there's just so many. There's so many instances of in creating Mage where I didn't know what I was doing, and then all of a sudden I knew what I was doing. It's just it's it's just absolutely the path of Mage creatively and narratively. And I think I mentioned this in one other interview. I uh, got to the next to last page of Denied. The the Next to last page of the very last page of the entire trilogy. And, of course, they've come back to reality, and Magda's familiar Cleo is still alive. But when she comes back, she now looks like just a, like a regular cat. And little Miranda, who, of course, has kind of got a, a certain perception of magic and magic things beyond her years and beyond her, uh, her scope, says, Oh, and look at you. You look just like a little uh, regular kitty now. I'm going to call you Domino. And that's all. That was all based on something. My, we had these two kittens at one point. We had these two cats that we had raised from kittens, and their names were Pai Mei and Mubai. So Pai Mei is the kung fu instructor in uh, Kill Bill, <laughs> and Mubai is the hero in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So I always called them the Kung Fu Kitties. <laughs> for some reason, my daughter just wouldn't accept that Mubai's name was Mubai. No, I'm going to call him Domino. And we were just like, no, his name's Mubai. She's like, no, his name's Domino. And we just couldn't talk her out of it. <laughs> and I didn't realize I was that was going to happen until the very last moment. So again, you know, everything about creating Mage just kind of just happened at its time and just felt magical at its time. How has being a hero changed for you over time? Well, I don't know. I think that's still confusing for me. Like it should be confusing for every human. I don't. I think the the whole point is, you know, this is one of the reasons I hate not to go on a screed here, but it's the reason I hate fucking religions, organized religions. They try to provide you an answer. I think the only thing that's important is the question, and I think I'll be asking that question of myself: What does it mean to be a hero? Like till I die? What does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be one with the universe? You know, I mean, I, I, I God, I hope we. I think it's healthy to never arrive at that answer i think if you arrive at that answer that's a lie from the bad guy you know that's a that's something the, the demon fed you so let me let me let me put this a different way because i i completely see the validity of that and i'm not i'm not looking for necessarily what is a hero carved in black and white how is being a hero and i think we've got a pretty good idea of what a being a hero is you know for you or at least an aspect of it and denied you're very clear about it. You spell it out towards the end there, especially. How radically does that differ from your concept of what a hero was when you were, you know, a hero was during Discovered? Oh, well, of course, you know, the Discovered day as a hero is just fighting. <laughs> 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 and, you know, there again, I, I think that's, uh, I think to when you realize how not to fight, that's how you become a hero. Although I will say, you know, where you're asking about special moments there, uh, another moment, one that I had kind of pre-planned or that I knew was coming was halfway through the series when Kevin's family seems to have been uh, at least kidnapped or destroyed by the bad guys and his, his house has been trashed by a giant fucking ogre and turns out, no, little, little clever Miranda is still zipping around there and she's managed to do something to kind of like strike back a little bit and you know there's that one scene where the ogre throws kevin through the garage and all these things go scattering all over the place and we don't notice or maybe you didn't notice there's a baseball bat there and the baseball bat's kind of featured in several panels after that kind of lying off to the side 
And then once he sees Miranda, when he's like, all right, shit, and he picks up the baseball bat. That that scene in number eight, that was a, that was a big moment for me where he's like, nope, daddy's got this. But yeah, of course, it's fine. You know, it's all about fighting, and you know, I guess, I guess the, you know, the, there again, all, all of these myths, all of these, uh, all of these journeys have to do with letting go of what seemed to be the immediate response and the immediate structure of violence to defeat things. And there again, Obi Wan says, "If you strike me down, Darth, I will become more po- powerful than you could possibly imagine." So along those lines, in in Hero Defined. Waliat tells Kevin that his power is a reflection, that the power is but a reflection of his soul, right? And as we'd kind of discussed, a lot of the tension in the third book does appear to be from Kevin dealing with, of course, his changing status to a degree denying the hero. So tell me about how is it possible for Kevin to use up the last spark of his heroic power? Is that um, what's what's going on there when he's draining himself? Well, I just think it's the uh, it's the metaphor of everything you would do for your children. You know, you'd give everything. When let me use a little personal uh, story here. When I was, you know, there's so many things that my parents told me and reflected to me that didn't make sense to me till later. For instance, I, I talked about how my parents weren't really uh, urban people. You know, they they were quite country folk. And when I wanted to go to uh, a city, I wanted to go to Philadelphia to go to art school. My dad drove me up there and dropped me off and took my stuff with me, you know, my student crap. And uh, and the place that the art school had put us in, they had bought this just tenement apartment building across the street to use for student housing. And it was, it was, Jesus, man, I can't describe what a fucking dump it was. It was just awful. Just awful. But I was, what, 18, 19? To me, it was just fine. Because it was right in the middle of a city where all sorts of shit was going on. And again, my dad was a didn't trust cities and yet he drove me up there and he knew this is what I wanted and what I thought I needed and he dropped me off and he turned around and he walked away and it was only many years later that I realized how important that was both to him and to me and what a show of strength that was both to him and to me and so so at the end there where where Kevin gives the last of his uh last of his power for his son to save his son. It reminded me of a time earlier in my life where I was just out of art school. I was young. I was 20-something. I was footloose and fancy free. Didn't have any health insurance. Didn't feel like I needed any health insurance. Nothing was ever wrong with me. I was. I felt fine. I, was, I never went to a doctor ever. I never had any health problems. And my mom used to just give me shit all the time. You need to get health insurance. Now, let me just stick in here politically. It's a fucking tragedy that everybody in America doesn't have health insurance like every other industrialized nation in the world. But she pointed out to me, because if something ever happened to you, we would bankrupt ourselves to make sure you were okay. We would give everything we had to make sure you survived. We would sell our house. We would deplete our entire savings to make sure you were okay. And probably that sunk in a bit at the time, but not the way it sinks into me now. Not the way it sinks into me being a parent now. Not not that I understand what that means. That you would sacrifice everything. You really would. No, that's great. Well, well put. And and your mom, frankly, <laughs> she nailed it. She she yeah. she hit it right on the head. Across the series, there are times where Kevin can come across as unsympathetic. I mean, he's steadfastly cynical and refuses the hero in Discovered. His assumption of leadership and that everyone should follow his lead and defined. 
his his chafing at having to deny his heroic nature and how that and how that impacts his family life. I mean, to the point where literally, I mean, he drops the ball on his family duty, and that ultimately is what puts the family in peril. Were you ever concerned that some of these more negative traits would push readers away from you know your protagonist during the story? No, because who likes a hero that's too fucking likable? <laughs> you know, I mean. Uh... Heroes, heroes should be kind of unlikable. Look, Han Solo is kind of an asshole. Luke, Luke Skywalker's whiny. <laughs> you know, Hercules is a, Hercules is a dick. King Arthur is—he's uh, a cuckold. You know, you have to—you have to—you know—if you you provide just this pure look, there's very few pure heroes that work. Superman is one. Can't think of a whole lot of others. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Batman works because Batman's kind of an asshole. Beowulf's an asshole. Uh, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta portray the fact that the the hero is human. The hero has frailties, faults, ignorance, arrogance, all the things that make us human. Because otherwise, he's a god, and gods aren't relatable. You need to be stupid and fucked up to be a hero. There, I said it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And that goes, you know, in doing backstory research or doing mythology research and looking into Gilgamesh, I mean, Gilgamesh was part God and quite... An asshole! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that was half the lessons he had to go through was, whoa, yep. dude, you're a jerk. Yep. Yeah, well, again, truthfully, Arthur has to go through that. Arthur, Arthur's lordly. You know, Arthur, you know, regardless of all, all the things that happened to Arthur, it's all due to his uh, hubris and his, uh, his arrogance. You know, I'm the king. I can't do any wrong. Well, yeah, you can do a whole lot of wrong, and that's probably going to be your downfall. But... You know, if you can prevent all these, if you can present all these unsavory elements of a hero and expresses humanity and he still comes through, then to my mind, that makes his tale of heroism something you can relate to and something that will be resonant to you as another human being. I think that across the series also, and maybe I'm going too far here, especially for those who kind of followed, you know, Kevin Matchstick's paces through their own journey that being human is really important to being able to make him relatable in both that mythic and every man sense i mean there's those big mythic chops but you look at this and you go yeah <laughs> he's kind of caught up in this and just dealing with it kevin fucks it up constantly till he finally figures it out i mean in all three series he fucks it up constantly till he finally figures it out he's powerful he can do a whole lot of shit but he fucks it up constantly till he finally figures it out that's you know and denied you know, I really tried to stress that. It's like, he's really, really powerful. He's got a lot of power. He can, if he chooses to do all this, he can do all this. But will he choose to do it? And will he choose to do it in the right way? We'll see. Right. And some of those moments as you're going alongside with him and you're like going, obviously, to a certain degree, as the reader, you know, you want to see this heroic journey come up. But, you know, you can listen to Magda and you're like looking at this and going, yeah, but he's a dad. She's being completely and totally reasonable in her response to all this. Yeah, you know, and I've read a couple of uh, interviews or uh, reviews, even from women that were like, oh, she's naggy. Oh, no, she's not. You've never been married, obviously. <laughs> she's not naggy. She's just like, well, come on, man. This is this is a commitment we made. We're, what are you doing? You're you're not engaged here. You're yeah yeah I yeah I I saw that there and I was like well 
nothing in there, nothing in there struck me as naggy as much as it was kind of like, dude, come back to reality because you just, and you know what, depending on your state of mind, and this is an unfair thing. I think this kind of ties into a bigger, you know, quite frankly, whether it's comics, whether it's movies, whether it's TVs, whether it's politics, it doesn't take much for a woman to have to do something for it to be called nagging or bitchy. When quite frankly, if a guy did it. Yeah, no shit, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. There again, even even by another woman. Yeah, yeah, it's a tragedy. So who were you thinking? Was there anybody that maybe in the back of your head you were thinking or feeling might appear in Hero Denied, you know, th- kind of in the vein of Hero Defined with, you know, the comic creator universe that didn't show up? Okay, so, uh, uh, yeah, specifically, uh, uh, based on a specific comment, so, you know, I've worked with James Robinson at various times in the past. He wrote the Terminator one-shot series I did for... Or, uh, issue I did for Dark Horse. And then, of course, he wrote the first Grendel Tales. And I remember him say, making some comment to me about, oh, well, you know, when when me and Neil Gaiman and all the other creators you've worked with ever since Bernie and Joe start showing up in Mage 3. And at the, at the time, I just kind of laughed that off. And then when I got to Mage 3, I was like, nope, did that already. Did already. There's no room for other. This is all about the family now. This doesn't. This is the Kevin and Magda show. It, nope. It's it's not the Kevin and his bros show. So yeah, no. I, I included everybody. I felt like I needed to include. Didn't feel like I left anybody out because, especially in the third one, there just wasn't room for anybody else. It's us four, and that's it, man. Oh, and it's kind of cool that you've got a. You know, granted, there's the larger circle of just surrounding heroes in Defined. But, and certainly one of those things you couldn't have ever planned for is, you know, Kevin has three companions, more or less, in the first series, three companions in the second, and three companions in the third. And not like you could have... Oh, funny how that works. Well, not like you could have planned to have necessarily two kids, you know? So it all worked out. It all worked out. It all worked out very nicely. Yeah, my life has supported my narrative, or the other way around, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> well, it works out nicely across the uh, across the covers of those uh, trade versions of the entire story. Also, those are just uh, the artwork on that, and, and Brennan's colors on those are just gorgeous. Well, I gotta say, it's been it's been great working with Brennan on this uh, on this final run because God, he he so wanted to do this so bad. You know, of course, he entered the field as a colorist, and he colored some of. Uh, stuff that I was writing and then he colored a few things that I drew and and he just kept giving me shit all the time he kept saying dad it's time to do mage 3 dad it's time to do mage 3 dad it's time to do mage 3 and I you know as I've said previously I'm very resistant to the push to do mage 3 or mage at any stage I I try and hold off as long as I can to where it's undeniable. And uh, he and his, at that point, fiance, well, I don't think they were quite engaged yet. But anyway, his his gal, now then fiance, now wife, they were taking a trip to Europe for a couple of weeks. And it was kind of during the time he was gone, the three or four weeks they were gone, that I decided, that's it. It's time to do Mage. And it just, you know, it, it hit me like a thunderstrike, like... It always does. And, you know, we picked him up from the airport and we took him out to dinner on the way home. And and we were kind of in between projects. And he said, all right, what's next? What are we working on next? And I said, what do you want to work on next? He said, I want to be mage. And I said, yeah, we're doing mage. So that was that was a great start to it all. But I got to say, he just stepped up to the plate and knocked it out of the gate because it's he, he did just such a wonderful, wonderful job on this. And, and it looks like no other... He he looks like no other colorist in commercial comics these days, you know. I mean, he's he has a very painterly approach, but he's not trying to overpaint me. 
he very much works within the confines of what the artist, I think, needs. I know he, he holds Dave Stewart as a real high example of that, and I think he tends to follow in Dave's structure of how he... Dave tries to make it look like as if the artist would have colored it themselves. Brennan doesn't quite do that. Brennan tries to color it as if the artist told him what to do. <laughs> um, it's still going to look like as if Brennan colored it because it's going to have his strokes, his very distinctive painterly strokes. But he's still definitely going to try and give the artist exactly what they want. But I've been very proud to work with him on this. And here I'll specifically point to an example in the very final issue, number 15 of uh, The Hero Denied. So in the very final, I don't know, 10 pages or whatever, the entire family, the entire Matchstick family, goes through three, three particular magic transformations. So first, Mirth hits him with his magic to kind of clean them up, to, you know, change their raggedness so they don't look like they've been through hell and uh, give them a few new uh, few new outfits here and there. Then shortly after that, Magda has to enact her uh, her bit to protect the family by throwing up her protection potion and then zapping it with the, the last spark of Excalibur from her ring. And then that kind of bathes the entire family in this magic aura and transforms them into this, uh, you know, protected from magic attack. And then, in the very next to last page, Mirth teleports them. He zaps them with magic and teleports them to their new home. So I pointed out to him, look, man, in three, in, I don't know, ten pages here, this family goes through three different magic transformations. Those all need to look different, but not look different. They, they can't be like, one's pink, one's blue, one's orange. It, it, they, they, it has to look like it's all within the same realm of our magic reality, but each one of those has to stand out as being different visually from the other ones because each one does a different visual thing. And that's all I told him. And he totally fucking nailed it in regards to that conundrum. And if you go back and look at that, there's this just beautiful similarity but difference between those three moments that I think really speaks to his uh, his really great skill as a colorist and that makes me very proud. No, that's uh, that's well put. As, as you were mentioning that, actually, I... Uh... I had a copy nearby, and I'm I'm looking at those as you were as you were describing that. And yeah, I would just have to say to anybody listening, uh, it's a great opportunity to to pick up the comic and take a look at those three different those three different scenes. They play really well. Uh, I'll say the podcast allowed me gave me a reason because I didn't want to give short shrift to anybody as part of this process. Here, you've you've got a you are a writer creator, but you've got a creative team with you, and it really made me look especially at coloring in a way that I had never looked at it before. And and Brennan certainly does have a very distinctive style that, that you don't usually see. I'm, I'm glad I did the podcast also, because that really allowed me to kind of deepen my, my recognition of that. Yeah, no, he's, uh, again, I couldn't be prouder of him than, than I am, because he's he's very much, uh, how would I describe it? He's a very engaged colorist. You know, I, I would think a lot of colorists uh, tend to take on volume, trying to meet their bills and and, uh, you know, color as many books as they can. He, he tends to take on a few amount of books and really give them his absolute focus and his absolute attention and his absolute creativity and really, really great results. So another person whose his work seems to permeate every single issue, and yet by that virtue is probably very easy to be overlooked because he's got this title that I'm not quite sure most people understand. Stephen Birch, as your book designer, tell me about what he did and the role that played in helping bring your story together. 
Well, you know, when you work with Image Comics, it's it's almost a an independent collective, so it behooves you to kind of have everything together on your own side of the equation. Certainly, Image will design your books for you if you so desire, but you know, they're a moderate sized publisher with a moderate sized staff, and it just works better if you can work with a designer that you know. So I draw the book, I write the book, Brennan colors the book, and Dave letters the book, but somebody needs to put that into book shape. You know what I mean? These needs to pace it out in its pages, needs to design what that recap page looks like, needs to design where the logo goes, needs to design how the letters column lays out. Um, Steve and I have been buddies for many, many years. We shared a studio together for many, many years. And when it came time to do this, I just knew there was just nobody else I wanted to work with because, again, we're we're just like brothers, brothers at heart, and we have a, a deep and kind of casual camaraderie you know we 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 speak the same language it, it just was never hard i would send him a list at the beginning of each what i would call a what you would call a pagination just pacing out like page one here's what's this here's what's this here's what's this and then he'd send it back he'd send back the whole issue like here here's what this looks like and it was already all designed ready to go and i just can't I can't express enough how much that stage of things is important to the final process of producing a comic or really anything. You know, I mean, uh, if you were looking at it in a musical sense, I keep, you know, I love to uh, refer to comics in a musical sense because everybody kind of understands what it takes to make an album, a piece of music and how, you know, you know, you need to put that in a package and you need to market it. The same is true with comics and same way like an album combines words and music. Of course, comics combine words and pictures, you know, so they, they do bear a certain similarity. And Steve just always, just always put my album together, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he always had this attitude of, don't worry, it's gonna be fine. Don't worry. I, I got this. Don't worry. You know, here. Yep, I got it. I'm gonna get to see you. And so, for instance, uh, when you look at the covers, how the logo lays on there, what colors they are, how it relates to the artwork, that's all Steve's decisions. He would he would give me uh, two or three different options to choose from, but those are all things that he laid out and he enumerated and he brought to fruition in a way that I just aren't in my skill set, you know? I draw and I write. I don't do that final fine-tuning stuff. And he's so, so good at it. A- any thoughts looking back now on working with Dave Lamphere on letters and, and working again with your sister-in-law and longtime editor, Diana Schutz. Well, okay. So uh, let's start with Dave. So I've worked with Dave for many projects now, uh, starting at Dynamite. I think the first thing I worked on with Dave where I really noticed what an extraordinary letter he was, was uh, the revamp of the spirit that we did. It was called The Spirit Returns. It was drawn by uh, Dan Scotty. And of course, you know, anytime you approach the spirit, you know, that's a legendary character in the world of comics. And of course, has legendary, uh, not only writing and drawing, but also lettering. You know, the lettering in the spirit was a very uh, crucial factor. And Dave really stepped up to the plate and gave it a lot of personality without trying to absolutely duplicate what, the Will Eisner Studios had done in the past. And then after that, I worked with him on, uh, I can't remember if it was first Grendel versus the Shadow or the death of Margot Lane. But in both cases, he he just just a a letterer that I feel pays attention to storytelling and pays attention to uh, character in his lettering. Not just trying to flap lettering down and make it make sense and make it fit. He, He wants to make it resonate. He wants to make you hear the lettering. You know, I, I remember uh, back in my early days, my uh, 
buddy uh, and occasional studio mate, Bill Willingham, had this saying, which is that comic book lettering should be the opposite of children. It should be heard and not seen. <laughs> <laughs> which means that you should you should hear it. Even though you're looking at it as a visual sense, you should hear it. And I think Dave's stuff really, really, really does that. With uh, Specifically with Mage, of course, in every Mage series... The very last page, dating back to the uh, first days when Bill Cucinata did it in uh, The Hero Discovered, and then Sean Conant did it in The Hero Defined. The very last moment, the hero, the, the the to be continued on the last page, always is bold and dramatic and designy and really reflects the moment. And you know, in every one of those cases, I left a big wide open template for those guys. Just do what you want, man. I'll tell you, I will tell you if it doesn't work, but I'm counting on you to make it work. And, oh my God, they, all of them just did beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, jobs. Specifically, one of my favorites from Dave was the, uh, the final page of episode, of uh, issue three of The Hero Denied, where Kevin has gone off on the road and, and gone out fighting nasties again just to spark his power and just to draw the Ember Sprite's attention to draw him away from his family and he's taking a bus out into the middle of nowhere and he's sitting in this loner park bench on a overlook out in the middle of nowhere and he says alright you assholes come and get me and and Dave did this awesome to be continued wish you were here that looks like it was off a postcard it was just so and again I gave him no direction on that that was absolutely totally Dave and pure Dave and oh my god he, he's just such a talented guy very happy to be working with him he's coloring he's gonna be lettering my uh my grindle series coming up too so yeah you've got a you've got a great it looks like you're you're keeping the team together in many ways on this upcoming grindle series yeah yeah we are and your editor well so uh diana you know had kind of retired from editing comics so uh i knew that i needed somebody to check my uh check my grammar and spelling and such and diana and i have traditionally argued over stuff for many many years about what is technically correct and what is visually correct (laughs) and i tend to veer on one side and she veers on the other and you can figure out who's who so i asked her if she would if she would come back and uh copy edit this for me basically which is a kind of non- correct description of what she does but she finally decided yes she'll come back and do that and she'll she'll give me her edits and then i go through and i basically choose the ones i like and ignore the ones i don't like so i said to her well how do you want to be credited for this because i you're not really my editor because i'm not doing everything you say so she came up with the term consulting editor which i thought was great because it of course harkens back to sherlock holmes's uh, consulting detective description <laughs> and uh yeah, no, I can't thank her enough too. And I think there is a a great story that she tells about a about a disagreement that the two of you had about a particular word, and I don't remember if this was in discovered or defined. And and I think she ends it with you saying quite pointedly, "I don't care if it's right or not. It's it's what works." Yeah, I, it might have been. Uh, we used to argue about funner, funner, the word funner, like, and she'd say, "It's mo- no, it's most fun or more fun." I was like. Yeah, fuck more fun. That's boring. That's a boring way to say that. Funner is the way to say it. <laughs> and I don't know. Like language, languages, uh, especially the English language, is uh, malleable and and uh, evolving constantly. So I don't know. We've we've always had fun arguing about that. We don't we don't. I mean, we don't get our 
panties in an uproar about it. But you know, she she does come down the side of of uh, traditional grammar, and I keep poking her to yeah, maybe not that maybe that's not the right way. And I think we both benefit by it. So you've mentioned that um, you've mentioned uh, once or twice, I think, the Grendel project that you're working on. What would you like to say about that? When is that looking like it's going to start coming out? Oh, that's going to come out in October. Uh, it'll be it'll premiere at the New York City Comic Con. I think it comes out the week before. I think the con starts on Thursday, so I think it comes out that Wednesday. Uh, I'll be there to promote that. And my son lives in, uh, Brandon lives in New York right now. So we will both be there and uh, be there to promote it. We'll be, we'll have artist alley tables. So anybody that wants to come see us, please do come see us. We'll be there. It's a great opportunity to get both of us to sign the many, many, many books we've worked on together at this point. Yeah, it's it's a new Grendel series. You know, it's just uh, got to a point where I realized the need to really like throw a huge change into the Grendel universe and my idea for that was to get get off of Earth, get Grendel Prime into outer space. Grendel Prime's an undying cyborg and uh, he could suffer the uh, travails of space travel and we're going to take him into outer space. Devil's Odyssey is the, uh, is the subtitle. That sounds like a whole new fun genre for yeah. uh, for you to explore. The initial artwork at least, I don't know if it's the first issue cover or just the promo piece, is just it's so evocative. It has this great kind of, at least to me, this 1950s kind of, you know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers feel, and yet this whole Grendel vibe at the same time, it's very nice. Yeah, it, uh, what I'm specifically shooting for is uh, a uh, 70s heavy metal kind of vibe. Uh, I mean, heavy metal magazine, not heavy metal music. Heavy metal magazine was an important factor in my realization that comics could be something other than the stuff that Marvel and DC was feeding me. That coupled with a variety of other things, I'll point to Cerebus, I'll point to ElfQuest, I'll also point to uh, something that's kind of lost in the firmament these days is uh, Jack Katz's First Kingdom. Jack Katz was this crazy uh, comic book illustrator that did this self-published thing in the 70s called The First Kingdom. And if you've never heard of this, go look it up. I won't say it's perfect, but it is intricate bizarre and uh, ambitious in in a huge amount of ways and had a huge effect on me so uh, i think it's going to have a huge effect on this as well cats uh, cats spelled k a t z like cats's deli in new york so here's here's my last question what didn't i ask you that i should have what what haven't you had a chance to share in this interview that you think people would like to know I don't know, man. You're pretty. You're you're pretty in depth. That's when I. It's one of the things I like about listening to your podcast. Like, damn, this guy gets everything. <laughs> like everything I could hope a reader would get out of my out of Mage specifically. It's like, yeah, Kevin got that. Kevin got that one too. Yeah. Oh shit, Kevin got that one too. I don't know. Maybe what's next, but I can't really describe what's next. I don't. You know, does Mage have a future after this? I don't know. I definitely don't know. Um, I think I'm done. But again, on that last page, Hugo's looking off to the right. So we'll see. All right. Hey, Matt, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. Thanks for taking the deep dive into this here. Gosh, man, I don't know what else to say other than thanks for joining uh, Thanks for joining the podcast and uh, and doing this interview. Well, dude, thanks for doing the podcast. Talk about a deep dive. Jesus, no deeper dive than this podcast, right? So thanks so much. I will say I have a, I have a special something, a little thank you something for you coming your way that you don't know about yet, but I think you'll dig it. I hope everybody enjoys this because I, this was a really great, really great examination of things and you ask good questions, which, of course, 
demand good answers. No, thank you. Excellent answers and uh, and some eye openers there too. Have a great one. Thanks, Kevin. Bye bye. Okay, so there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share about anything mage related, visit magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways that you can get in touch. If I get enough comments and thoughts, I'll do a special listener commentary episode. Anything is game as a topic. Obviously open to thoughts about the series finale or thoughts about how the entire trilogy came together. Even things you may have noticed now that the trilogy is completed. Anything from discovered, defined, denied is fair game. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.